I'll be reading this morning from Colossians 3, verses 1 to 11, which you can find in your bulletin. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all of these things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Allie. Uh, just uh, so for those of you who are visiting, in, in case uh, you don't know, we uh, oftentimes, after the, the, the message, if we have time, we take a few questions. Uh, if you have questions uh, that may pop up over the course of the, the message, feel free to write them down, and uh, you can ask them if there's time at the end of the, the message. Uh, either raise your hand to ask a question, or uh, if you're not comfortable doing that, you can text. I have my phone up here with me, and you can text me uh, your question as well. The number is there in the bulletin. And then, of course, on the back page of the bulletin, you'll see an outline of the message to help kind of work as a roadmap for us so that we understand uh, where we are, where we're going. So we have been, uh, the last several weeks, we have been... um, dealing with the question of how, how do you live a gospel-centered life? The gospel is this message, Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that means that that message is, is they believe it to be true. They've had an experience, in a sense, of the truth of their sin, of the truth of the holiness of God, of their need for repentance and of their need to give their life to Jesus Christ and to live for Him. That's sort of what we believe conversion is, intellectually. But how does this message work its way down into our day-to-day lives? And that's what we've been uh, dealing with together over the last several weeks. How does this message shape the way I go to work on Monday? How does it shape the way I go to school? How does it affect how I interact with other people or raise my kids or... or, or uh, build a relationship with my girlfriend or whatever, okay? And so we've looked at the holiness of God. We've, we've looked at, we've thought through um, uh, sin, the concept of sin, what it is and, and how it relates to God holiness, God's holiness. We've talked about the law. What is the law? What's the role of it in a, in a Christian's life? We've, we've talked about repentance. We did that last week. We addressed the issue of repentance, how repentance is not just something that you do once, I repent of my sin and I ask God to forgive me, boom, I'm done. But rather, repentance is something that should be an ongoing part of a Christian's life. And of course, we did just a flyover. We did a very basic introduction to the concept and it it was hard to do because there was so much that I wanted to say. 
Um, and I promised that, that you'd get maybe a series on the, the question of confession, repentance, and forgiveness, all that stuff uh, in the future. I'm going to do the same thing this morning. I'm going to tell you that what we're going to talk about is vitally, vitally important. It is critical for me personally, this concept and understanding this concept and reading about it and meditating on it and reflecting on it for the last, probably I was introduced really, I mean, I I always believed in it, but I was introduced to the personal impact it has on a person's life probably about 12 years ago or so, maybe 13 years ago, and I have been chewing on it ever since then, and my wife and I have been talking about it, and we've been wrestling with it. It has been revolutionary in our lives, and it is critical, I think, to really understand how to live a gospel-centered life, and we're just going to do a flyover again. So maybe I'm promising a whole other series. I don't know. Probably, or maybe I'll just make almost every sermon about this for the next five years. How's that sound? The, the issue is this, idolatry. Now, I can't emphasize it enough. As I was thinking about it, I was like, how do I get this across? Here's how I'm going to try to get this across. Do you want to know what makes you tick? Do you want to know why... You do the things you do, and you seem to do them over and over and over again. Why do you have these sinful patterns in your life, and you can't quite figure out where that's coming from? You want to know what the problem with the world is? The problem, according to Scripture, is idolatry. It's a word we barely ever use. It's probably a word that hardly any, most of us, we probably barely understand it. But according to the Bible, this is the problem that lies underneath all your other problems. Human beings are worshiping beings. We are worshiping animals, if I can dare use that word, and you know I think that we're not animals, but we are worshipers. That is what we do. And according to Scripture, under your problems, under the sort of surface problems that you're dealing with all the time, lies the problem of worship, worshiping idols rather than worshiping God. Now, again, this is humongous. 30 minutes? Yeah, right. We're going to try to do a flyover and build a foundation in these 30 minutes together. We're going to define idolatry. We're going to discover how to dis- figure out how to discover our idols, and then hopefully also learn something about how to defeat the idols in our life. Three Ds, hey, define, discover, defeat. Every preacher is always really excited when they come up with some cool 3D type thing, so I'm very excited about that, and we're going to do this together. We're going to go through these 3Ds. Now, before we start, let me just say this. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, and that means you either, I don't care if you were raised in a church for years and years and years, or if this is the first time you ever darkened the door of a church, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... And you're listening to this and you're like, oh man, like I came to church on a Sunday when he's going to talk about idols and stuff like that. That ain't my problem. I don't believe in any of this stuff. So it's not really my issue. And frankly, it sounds a little bit weird and kind of irrelevant. I'm going to ask you to please hold on and listen because this is one of the profound insights, I think, of the Bible. And it's this, that, that the issue of idolatry is not a religious problem. It's a human problem. 
David Foster Wallace, who was not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but is a brilliant, uh, or was, I should say, he tragically took his own life not too long ago, a couple of years ago. Uh, he was an American writer, not a believer. Uh, he said something very profound, I think, at uh, Kenyon College back in 2005 when he gave the commencement speech there. It's quoted on the front of your uh, bulletin. You can read the whole thing at your own leisure. I'm just going to read this part. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And that's from an atheist, okay? And if that's not enough, you can read this quote that was attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson, another literary figure from, uh, from uh, U.S. history and a brilliant transcendentalist. So he was a religious person, but he was not by any stretch of the imagination a Christian. He said, a person will worship something. This is also on your bulletin. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our heart, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts, and that's what an idol is, okay? The thing that dominates your imaginations and your thoughts, it will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. That is a profound found insight into human nature and into human character. Friends, we got to think about this together. Let's do it. Number one, what is an idol? Let's define idolatry for first of all. Verse 5, Paul says this, he says, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. It's very interesting he gives this list of behaviors that he says, hey, it's a good idea to get rid of these kinds of behaviors, and you would probably agree with that. But then he says something interesting. He calls greed idolatry. He says, Put, get rid of all these things, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Now, that may be, that's, that's unique because to most of us, when we think of the word idol, probably what pops in our head is uh, a picture of someone bowing down to a statue or an image or something, right? Like an idol is a figure. It's made of stone or wood or something like that, or it's a picture on a wall or whatever. You know, like Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom. Anybody old enough to remember that movie? That's what you think of. That's probably what most of us think of when we think of idolatry. And it's true. Idols oftentimes can be things out there, but that's not the definition of an, of an idol that Paul gives in this passage, he says greed is idolatry, and greed is not an external thing out there, right? You, what's greed? What's a picture of greed? Donald Trump, maybe? I don't know. Maybe that's a picture of greed. But greed is an internal thing. What is greed? Greed is the love of money, right? Or it's an excessive love of money. And Paul does not call Money, an idol, the thing itself, he calls love of money an idol. Greed, he says, is the idol. It's an, it's an internal problem. And, and that's what he calls idolatry in this passage. There are what are called parallel passages in Scripture, meaning Paul writes on similar issues in other places. And in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 5, Paul gives another list, and he says this in verse 3. He says, "...among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality." or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Here's another list. It's a little more inclusive, right? 
Because he says, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which is out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. Listen to this. No immoral, impure, or greedy person. So he, he takes all those things that he just listed, and he, and he puts them all into three categories. No immoral, impure, or greedy person. Such a man is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. In other words, someone who is involved in these things, someone who is immoral or impure or greedy, is an idolater. In other words, Paul makes it sound, at least in this passage, he makes it sound like everything's idolatry. Immorality, impurity, etc. Anything can be an idol. And that's exactly right. This is the profound insight here. Anything can be an idol. How in the world is that? How can anything be an idol? How can love be an idol? How can kindness be an idol? How can, how can, how can my wife be an idol? We get help from the other word that Paul uses here in verse 5. Notice that he says, uh, he says, uh, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your er- earthly nature, sexual immorality, Im- impurity, lust. And then he says, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Evil desires. So Paul uses this word that, that is translated in this passage, evil desires. And frankly, that's a little bit unfortunate because it's an interesting word. It's this Greek word, epithumia. It's one of those few Greek words that you may hear me use over and over again. Epithumia. And this particular word, it doesn't really refer to kind of a regular desire for bad things, right? Like I desire, what's bad for you? Like drugs, okay? It's not like a regular desire for things that are bad for you. Rather, it's a term that describes an an over-the-top, inordinate, out-of-control desire, even for good things. So it's a desire that has gone kind of nuclear, okay, in your life and in your heart and in your mind. That's what is described as an evil desire in this passage. See, in Scripture, okay, in the Bible, an idol can be anything because an idol essentially is this, anything that is more important to you than God is. Anything that's more important to you than God is. Anything that you love more than God, anything that, you, that captures, absorbs your imagination and captivates your desires more than God, anything that you look to to provide for your ultimate significance and your ultimate security and your ultimate value, anything that you look to to find your identity in other than God is an idol. So you know, back in Exodus, way back in the Old Testament, God takes the people of Israel, he takes them out of Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law, right? And we talk about the Ten Commandments as being the law. But what's fascinating is, is that in Exodus 20, Paul said, or sorry, Paul, (laughs) Moses, well, actually God, wrote this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. The first thing you need to realize, people of Israel, is that there's only two options. You will either worship me, I will be your God, or you'll worship something else. He doesn't say the first, uh, the first rule is make sure that, that I am 
that, that you worship God and, and not nothing. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first thing. There's only two options. You will worship me or you will worship something else. And what is worship? Worship is basically attributing value to something, ultimate value to something. The word worship comes from an old English word, worth-ship. When you worship something, you are attributing ultimate value to that thing. You are saying that thing is more worth my, uh, my affection, more worth my uh, devotion and commitment than anything else. That's what it means to worship something. And so God first says, you either worship me or you worship something else. Those are your only choices. And what are those something else's? Verse 4, you, not, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Anything can be an idol. That, and here's what that means. This means that idols are not just bad things that are bad for you. That's what we typically think an idol is. Well, that thing is, must be a bad thing and it's bad for me. No. An idol is anything that's gone nuclear in your life. Anything that's gone outsized. Anything that's become so important to you that it is central. It is essential. And it has control over you. In other words, when anything, even good things, become God things, they are an idol. And what this means is, according to the scriptures, is that um, sorry, checking out my own outline. Uh, this means, according to the scriptures, that, that idolatry is actually the root sin under all the other sins that you and I commit. So before any external sin, like before we lie, before we commit adultery, before we murder or even hate someone in our heart, even to use the, the New Testament definitions of that, every time we, before we do one of these visible sins, we're already committing idolatry. We lie, we resent, we hold grudges, we fall into some kind of sexual sin, we are hypocritical or we are undisciplined. Whatever it is we do, we are first committing idolatry, not adultery, idolatry. And that means then that the ultimate remedy for even these visible sins that lie up here, these are the things that are external and that you see and, and that you know are, are very available, are, are very uh, volatile and, and destructive in your life. Those things, the, the remedy for those things isn't just dealing with those things. You've got to deal with the, the sin under the sin. You've got to deal with the idolatry behind the sin. Like a doctor, right? When a doc, you go to see the doctor and the doc, and you say, Doc, man, my throat is like, oh, it hurts like crazy. I'm dying over here. And the doc says, you have strep throat. And he says, I got to treat the strep throat, right? What does he do? He gives, you first, he gives you something for the pain, the symptom. Your problem is it hurts like the blazes. But then he gives you the, uh, what is that? Antibiotics, right? Antibiotics. I got, there's a doctor in the house. I'm freaking out. I'll make sure I get it right. Uh, they give you antibiotics to treat the infection that has the strep infection, right? That's the sin under sin. Well, the same thing is true in our own lives and in our own hearts. We can't just deal with the surface sin. We have to deal with the infection below. And the infection below is this thing called idolatry, loving something more than we love God. 
Okay, that's point number one. Defining an idolatry. Okay, how do we deal with it then? We, how, do we, how do we address this? Well, the second thing is, is we have to discover our idols. We have to discover them. Okay, how do you discover them? Well, there's a couple of ways that we're going to talk about very quickly. And the first one is, is you trace consistent bad fruit in your life back to the root. So if you notice in verse 8, Paul says this, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. This is the second list that he's given in this passage, right? He gave a list in verse 5, and now he gives a list in verse 8. And basically, what he's doing is, is he's showing what certain bad attitudes and bad behaviors exist in a human being. But we need to identify those things. We need to do the hard work of self-identifying those kinds of things and tracing them back to the root problem underneath them. So let me, let me give you an example. Let's say you have someone and you say, okay, let's, let's talk about what your problems are. And, and they say, okay, um, well, I know that I can tend to be passive-aggressive. So there are certain contexts and in certain relationships that I can be passive-aggressive. You know, I can just be very difficult in order to get back at someone for something. Okay, so that's a problem. Uh, what else is a problem? Well, I, I've noticed that there's a certain amount of laziness in certain areas of my life. Not in all areas of life, but in certain areas of my life, I can be a lazy person. Okay. And then what else? Well, there are times where I just can be overwhelmed by anger. Like, I just can get really mad. So here's your things. You're passive-aggressive, you're lazy, and you're angry. Not all the time. Just in certain contexts, just in certain situations, maybe with certain people. And, and as you start to wrestle with, what is it? What are the contexts? Where does this happen? Why does this happen? And, and the person discovers, well, you know, I can be really passive-aggressive when I'm in a situation where, where I want to control the situation, where I want control, and I can't have control. And because of that, I kind of become resentful, and then I become difficult to work with because I'm not in control. Or I can be, I can be lazy in certain areas of my life. Uh, um, for example, when, when, when I'm really concerned about what people think of me, then I work very, very hard. But I get a little bit lazy in circumstances that don't really matter to me. Like how I dress, for example. That doesn't matter to me. Or... You say, I can get angry at times um, uh, when people don't approve of me, when people don't accept me, when people uh, don't think I'm great or, or, or give me the kind of encouragement or the, the kind of positive feedback that I want. It, I find that very, very frustrating, and I can, I can find myself getting angry about that, or I can find myself like wallowing in despair over that when I think about this person that just doesn't, doesn't like me. And as you begin to sort of piece things back together and you follow the, these three different types of problems back, you discover that there's kind of a root behind it all. And you say, huh, it looks like there's an idol idolatry here, an idol in which you long desperately for the approval of other people. Behind these behaviors is this common root of that, that you're, you're a people pleaser. You want people to love you. You want people to accept you. You want people to approve of you. And so these things crop up when that becomes a problem for you. Do you see? you got to trace them back. Now, not everybody's the same, right? I probably hit like probably 70% of you because <laughs> it's a big one for a lot of people. But not everybody's like that, okay? So, 
So I thought, all right, you know, you got to take your own medicine, Van and Brink. You're going to preach this at people. You better bring it on yourself. So I start, you know, I thought about this, and I've, I've, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Not doing very good at the defeating part, but we'll work on that together. Uh, three, three idols that are pretty big in my life. Uh, I would say control, respect, and comfort. These are three idols that are pretty monumental in my own life that I have to be aware of and I have to be constantly wrestling with and, and, and fighting against. So if something is important to me, if something matters to me, then I want to be in control. I want to be in charge of that because I don't trust anybody else to do things well or properly or as well as or properly as I could. So there's lots of pride in there too, but let's just, let's take it a little easy on me. Second of all, respect is a huge deal for me. So, so I, am, I am interested in being liked, but I am far more interested in being respected. So I want people to think that I'm a nice guy and that they like me and maybe they want to spend time with me, but to be honest with you, deep down in my soul, if you don't want to hang out with me, that's not my biggest issue. What I do concern myself with is whether you think I'm competent, whether you think I'm smart, whether you think I'm capable. And then the third thing is, is comfort. I, I like things to go my way because I'm a control freak, I like them to go my way, but I like them to go my way easily. I don't like difficulty. I don't like, I just want to tell people this is how it goes, and then they do it. And then I'm happy, and if they're not, whatever. So these are, but now, okay, we're, we're chuckling at it, but listen, okay? Ask my kids what it's like to live with a man like that. There are funny manifestations of it, but sometimes they can be pretty ugly. I can be unduly exacting and demanding and hard on people. I can be harsh because I'm not too concerned about hurting your feelings. I'm just more concerned about getting things taken care of. I can be easily irritated with people because I say, hey, let's do this. And they go, yeah, I'm not too up for that. And then I go, wait a minute, but I said, let's do this. And now you are a problem. You see, these are, these are things that, 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 that you have to face, you have to wrestle with, you have to address, you have to, you have to challenge them because if you don't discover them, if you don't do the self-examination, then you don't ever understand where that anger is actually coming from or where that irritableness is actually coming from or where that harsh tongue actually comes from. It's just sort of, it's just sort of happening. And you deal with it ad hoc. You say quickly, I'm sorry to the person you've offended. And then you move on, but you don't actually ever make progress, you see. So the one way is, is you have to deal with the surface sins and follow them back to the root, okay? I'm not just sometimes harsh and sometimes blunt, you know? Like, like in, in, in certain contexts, when you're feeling like you're trying to defend yourself, you say, well, I'm just a direct person. That's no excuse for being a hurtful person. And you passive-aggressive types, you can just say, well, I just don't like a conflict. Well, that's no excuse for killing people with a thousand cuts rather than one big right hook, okay? So that's the first thing. We need to, we need to discover, that's one way. But the second way, like, let's face it, that's hard, eh? We're not very self-aware. <laughs> We're not. We're not self-aware. We're not very honest with ourselves because it's painful. And so you can ask a friend, you can ask a spouse, and sometimes in good marriages, 
spouses are awesome, but uh, even there, you don't always get, get exactly the straight goods. So another way you can d- address this is, is you can trace the epithumia and figure what it is by ask, figuring out what it is by asking good questions. Ask good questions to find out what that over-desire is. So for example, ask yourself, what is it you fear? What is it you fear? See, if a good thing is in trouble, you worry, right? If something matters to you and it's a good thing and, and it's important to you, you worry. But if it's an epithumia, if it's an over-desire, if it's an ultimate thing, you don't just worry about it, you're paralyzed by it. Think about that thing that if you lost it, it would take away your reason to live. What are you too terrified to experience life without? I tell you, if you're married and you're in a good marriage, probably the first one is your spouse. If you're in a really good marriage, it's, it's the thought of living without your spouse. It's so funny. Idolatry is so deadly, okay? Good marriages. What's your biggest danger of an idol in a good marriage? It's your husband or your wife. Like, which one of us would think of that on our own? Uh Uh-oh, I love Jessica too much. I better be careful. Like, how does that become a problem? Oh, man, I I could go on and on and explain how that could be a problem, but I won't. I will just say... Fear, what are you afraid of losing? Alfred Adler, he was a a psychologist. I don't believe he was a Christian, but a brilliant psychologist. He basically said, the deepest emotions of fear and anxiety within us, they point us to our functional God. What about anger? What is it that when it gets blocked, when someone stands in the way of it, you're not just upset and frustrated, you like are fuming. You get bitter, you hold on to it, you nurse that grudge, you can't let it go, it just burns within you. Or guilt, what is it that makes you guilty? If you were to fail at something, let's say you were to fail at planting a church, and you experience tremendous guilt over it, and you can't let it go, you can't escape it, it just weighs you down, and you can't go on living because of the guilt, that's an idol. Back in 2008, with the, with the big financial crash, you know, and there was executives, high-profile executives of major corporations who had lost millions and billions of dollars, that a number of them, they ended up taking their own lives. They could not face living with the consequences of what they had done. Because idols rule us, and they will crush us when we fail them. They have a controlling influence over us. And so you've got to discover them. That's the first step in dealing with your idols. But the second step in dealing with your idols, this is our last point, is you need to defeat them. You need to defeat your idols. They want to destroy you. You've got to destroy them. You notice there's a couple things. Okay, what do you need to remember if you're going to defeat them? Defeating your idols. First one, destroy, don't manage. Look at at what it says in verse 5. It says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, etc. Guys, men, I'm a man, so I, I, I... Do you put to... Do you look at your lust? Do you look at your tendency to, to... to lust after women or things even? Do you look at that as something that needs to be killed? Like, whoa, this is deadly dangerous? Do you look at, if you're a resentful person, 
Do you look at that and say, well, if I hold grudges, and I, like, I got to kill that. That's a bad thing. That's a, such a dangerous thing, a terrible thing. It needs to be crushed. See, most of the time, we, we simply try to manage our problems. We manage them. We suppress them. But imagine a knight is in a battle with an evil knight. You know, this always happens, right? And you watch a movie, and there's the good guy and the bad guy, and the good guy is in a duel with the bad guy. And the good guy, he... He hammers, like, I'm thinking sword duel, okay? So they're fighting, and he's hammering on him, and he's finally got the evil guy. Like, they go back and forth, and he disarms him, right? Right? Like the princess bride, and the, and the, the sword goes flying, and then you've got him on the, on the ground, and you're holding him there, and because you're the good guy, what do you do? You show mercy, right? So then you don't kill him. You turn around to walk away, And what happens? The bad guy, he pulls a dagger. And he's about to stab you, and then you turn around and and you get him in the end anyway, right? Your idols, they got a dagger. You cannot manage them and suppress them and just say, do you yield? And they say, I yield. You got to kill it. That's the first thing. You got to destroy it. Look at the Old Testament. Read the book of Kings, read the book of Chronicles over and over and over again. You read about a king. You're like, these, these the Israelites, like they just went berserko with sin, okay? They did all kinds of wicked things. And then every now and then, a good king would pop up. Maybe two or three in a row would pop up. And it would say that they did not walk in the ways of Jeroboam, his grandfather, whatever, but he walked in the ways of Asa, his father, or something like that. And he, he did right in the eyes of the Lord. But then there'd be this little tag, but he did not tear down the high places. He did not remove the high places. And the high places were where the people would, would, uh, they would sacrifice to their pagan idols, okay? And the king would not, would not tear down those high places, would not destroy those altars to these pagan gods. And sure enough, what would happen just a couple of verses later Boom, the people drift back into idolatry. you got to kill it. Here's Israel. Israel's what? They were in slavery for 400 years. 400 years. They're finally freed by God. He does amazing things. He sends these plagues that totally invert the, the order of creation. For the, like he's, t- he's tearing apart the created order in order to free his people Israel. He literally takes them through this this, uh, Red Sea magically. Like, can you imagine seeing the, the, magically, (laughs) seeing the, the, the parting of the waves and they walk through like you're experiencing God's mighty power in unbelievable ways and they're walking along and eventually they start saying, this sucks. It's hot. I'm hungry. You remember Egypt? Egypt leeks and onions and sugar plums dancing in our heads. Like, human beings, we are idol factories. And you can, if you don't kill it, it comes back. It's like Medusa. You know Medusa? You know, the, the woman with the, the, the head of snakes, right? And you, or no, no, the hydra. Sorry, the hydra. The seven-headed snake thing. You cut off one head. Seven more grow up in its place. Like, that's life, man. you gotta, you got to deal with them by killing them. You can't just cut off the head. You've got to put a knife in the heart of it. Okay. <laughs> it's worse, though, 
um, it's not just that you got to kill it, you got to be vigilant. What do I mean by that? In verse 5, it's interesting how it says, put to death these things, right? And then in verse 7, it says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. So that used to be your thing. But it also says, put it to death. And then in verse 8, it says, you must rid yourself of all things such as... uh, anger and rage and malice. And then verse 9, it says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. So wait a minute, I've taken off my old self with its practices, but apparently you're telling me don't lie. So that must mean I'm still lying. What's going on here? Is it over or is it ongoing? And the point uh, that, that Paul is making here is, is that this is something that, that you have to do constantly. It says you once walked in these ways, but it also says put to death these things. The killing is ongoing. See, it's not, an, it's not a one-time thing. Remember Israel? They had to keep killing this memory of their idol. Like an addict that has to keep fighting the desire to go back to that, to that substance that, that they were abusing. You have to maintain vigilance. This is an ongoing thing that you have to do for your entire life life. Okay, I got to put it to death and I got to put it to death over my entire life. Last thing, what's the way? And that's right here in verse four, or sorry, one to four. Paul says this, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Paul says, set your heart and set your mind. This is how you do it. You got to set your heart and you got to set your mind. This, friends, is the language of worship, right? He's using worship language. When you set your heart on something, that's the thing that you love. That's the thing that, that is the controlling thing in your life. When you set your mind on something, that means that's the thing that you think about. That's the thing that you meditate on. That's the thing that you work out over and over and over again. Paul Tripp, a great counselor, he uses a great line to describe what has to happen. Basically, it's this. We worshiped our way into this mess. We're going to have to worship our way out of it. The way that we deal with these idols is actually through worship. An idol, because everybody worships, because you cannot help but worship, you can't just remove an idol because another one will just jump in its place. You can't just remove idols, you have to replace idols because everything is worship. Thomas Chalmers, a a, a 16th, 17th century minister, he put it so beautifully when he said this, there is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. The heart's desire for one particular object can be conquered. Yay! The heart's desire for one particular object can be conquered. I can conquer my desire for your approval. Okay. But the heart's desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is the expulsive power of a new one. Isn't that beautiful? The expulsive power of a new affection. What's he talking about? You got a group of five-year-olds, and they're all at a birthday party, and mom says, let's play musical chairs. And so all the kids start walking around the chairs and the music goes off and there's always one chair less than there are kids, right? That's the point of it. And then when you get down to the end, there's one chair and there's two kids and they're walking around in a circle and the music comes off and there's an epic clash of derrieres. 
as the two kids both slam onto the, the chair at the same time, trying to fight for supremacy. And eventually one knocks the other kid off and sits on the chair, and they, they win. Well, friends, what Thomas Chalmers is saying is, is that your heart is like the musical chair game. Or even better, it's a throne. And something has to sit on the throne of our hearts. And it is through worship by worshiping the right thing, by setting our affections on the right thing, that the wrong things are removed. The thing that gets the idol of control and respect and comfort off of my heart is not by just telling myself, don't, don't, uh, don't do that. It's by worshiping Christ. Notice that, that he says this. He says, set your heart above. Why? Because that's where Christ is, Right? And then he says, set your mind above. Why? He says, because you died and your life is hidden with Christ. He goes back to the gospel. You got to go back to what Jesus has done for you. If you're going to reorder your loves and worship rightly, you got to go back. You got to go back to that moment when Jesus died for you. Like, you got to think about what happened there, what he did there. Can you imagine witnessing an artist seeing their prized sculpture about to be destroyed and bulldozed and they fling themselves in front of that prized sculpture in order to sacrifice themselves in order to save that sculpture? You'd think to yourself, wow, do they ever love that sculpture? That's you. You're that sculpture. And you're prized by the artist. Maybe nobody else prizes you. Maybe nobody else thinks you're of any use or of any importance or of any beauty. Maybe you walk down the halls at school and not a single girl gives you a look because you ain't all that much to look at. Maybe you're at work and you see over and over again, that guy got promoted ahead of you and that guy got promoted ahead of you and that gal got promoted ahead of you and that woman got promoted ahead of you and you just keep being forgotten. You just plod along doing your job and you come to church and you listen to your friends and you ask, how are things going with you? Oh, it's great, man. I just got a, a promotion or yeah, I'm getting more responsibility or I started a business or whatever. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm, I'm a loser. I'm going nowhere. Not to him. To him, you are so valuable that he threw himself into the jaws of death and hell itself to rescue you. And not only that, your life is hidden in Christ with God. You know what that means? That means that he was resurrected, he was raised, he went back into the presence of the Father after he lived and died for you. How do you think the father felt about him? What do you think it's like to, to send your son on a most dangerous journey, on a most deadly quest, and to know the suffering they're going to have to go through in order to accomplish it, but they do it, mission accomplished. They come back into your presence. What did the father think of the son? How did the father welcome the son? He opened his heart to him. He opened his arms to him. All the universe celebrated in joy over him. Well, your life is hidden in Christ with God. The Father celebrates over you. The Father delights in you. There's this beautiful verse in Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah is a really hard book of the Bible to find because it's so small. But it says this. This is in the Old Testament, okay? Verse 17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. 
He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Because of Jesus, God in heaven rejoices over you with singing. You've got to worship your way out of it, friends. And when you do, you realize, wow, why am I, why am I bowing at the feet of success? Why am I bowing at the feet of physical beauty and the accolades of people? Why am I bowing at the feet of getting the approval of this person? The king of the universe delights in me and never will stop delighting in me. You see, if you fail your idol, it will crush you. But if you fail your savior, he died for you. Worship your way out, friends. Find freedom from idolatry in our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiveness. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for freeing us from our idols. Impress upon us that you do delight in us despite ourselves and tear our hearts off our old affections. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.